I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with uh, Deirdre Bosa and the Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern back with us for the hour today. Uh, meantime, what quiet week. S&P hits another record high coming off its 69th record close of the year. NASDAQ reversing some earlier gains on pace for its first down day in the last five. Plus, Apple now falling after hitting nearly uh, a $3 trillion market cap once again. Despite this morning's dip, the stock's on pace to notch a 35% return in 2021. And as Apple remains near those record levels, so do many of the chips on Semi, KLA, AMAT, Broadcom, all hitting some all-time highs this week. We're going to break down the street's top picks this hour, Dee. We're going to start with record highs for stocks. S&P higher. Nasdaq has slipped into the red, down about one-tenth of a percent. Apple was inching closer to that $3 trillion market cap. The stock, though, falling a little this morning after approaching that 182.86 level. That is the 3T mark. However, as stocks have risen, so have COVID cases, prompting Apple to close all of its New York City stores to in-person shopping, limiting activity to picking up online orders only. This coming as the CDC shortens the recommended quarantine period from 10 to 5 days for individuals who no longer have COVID symptoms. And guys, as we watch Apple approach this level, investors have really shown a willingness to look past things like those retail closures. Also, the chip shortage, which we've spent a lot of this year talking about. Joanna, it's really this perfect storm for a company of this size. Investors believe that Apple can still innovate and have this huge cash pile, which makes it so attractive. Yeah, and I'm not surprised about the store closures for Apple. I mean, last year around, it was 2020 March, they they were ahead of closing stores. It was almost like sort of a Waffle House index mm-hmm. of where COVID was going to spread next if Apple stores closed. Um, but yeah, they proved that the in-store pickup model worked really well for them. I mean, all of these stores, at least in New York, uh, right now, not allowing foot traffic in, but you can pick up stuff, you can re- make returns, which is an important thing this week, obviously, after the holidays. You know, Joanne, I wonder what you make of, you know, A, the year they've had in terms of going vertical in chips and the way in which that's improving uh, their existing products, but also the optionality that they keep baking into the model, either short term on, say, this AR VR headset, which the street's in love with already, and it's not even here, uh, and then long term with uh, with the prospect potentially of a car. Uh, they seem to have played all of those various baskets pretty well this year. Yeah, I think I think one of the biggest stories of tech of the last year, and I know we're going to talk about it later in the show, has been companies and their own chips, creating their own chips, building around that. For Apple, that was the story of the last year, certainly around the M uh, the M1. Uh, Pro and the M1 Max chips, how they've just sort of skyrocketed in terms of what they can do around their computers and then what they can take that with uh, into the future. I think you uh, obviously analysts all all believing that that is going to be core to the AR, MR headset, whatever you want to call it, uh, that is predicted to come later this year. 
And if John was here, I think that he would be mentioning this vertical integration that we have seen from Apple over the last few years. That M1 chip <laughs> has been, you know, really it could be, maybe has been a game changer, certainly for the MacBooks. Uh, so that's another side of Apple's sort of incredible run that we have seen. And we should note, too, that it just flipped into the positive. So, Carl, maybe, just maybe, we'll get there about six, no, only less than $3 to go to get that 3T mark, maybe, in our show. Fingers crossed. Yeah, we're, I mean, it's a long I've, show. I've memorized the number already, 18286. <laughs> I mean, I just keep saying it over and over and over as we approach uh, $3 trillion in market cap. Let's bring in Mike Santoli, talk about uh, mega cap's influence on the overall indices today. And I guess, Mike, in a creeping discussion this morning about being uh, overbought, maybe extremely overbought in the short term. Yeah, I think uh, you look at the S&P, for example, NASDAQ 100, really getting up to levels where we've seen a few times this year. So it's not something which is, you know, kind of cosmically stretched to the upside. But yes, uh, the momentum has definitely taken the index uh, to a point where you have to say, you know, we usually get a little bit of a pause, uh, let it cool off a little bit. I wouldn't say the average stock is there. I mean, we have been talking about how uh, there was so much below the surface uh, selling that went on in the last couple of months. Uh, a lot of the unprofitable names, a lot of the more speculative stuff really got washed out. So it is mostly about the largest stocks. You know, the NASDAQ 100 up a couple percent, two and a half percent or so this month, where the equal weighted version of the NASDAQ 100 is basically flat. Uh, the, the, the 100s outperforming the NASDAQ composite by like six percentage points year to date. That's a pretty significant uh, change considering that the 100 is such a huge portion of the market cap of the overall index. So it does tell you, uh, you know, the giants have uh, have continued to pile on uh, market value, though. Interestingly, Tesla and NVIDIA are two of the top five contributors uh, to the uh, Nasdaq performance and the S&P performance, I believe, this year. And they didn't start the year as top five market cap weight. So that's just a measure of the magnitude of the gains there. Yeah. When you think about, um, you know, calendar issues, window dressing year end, as well as reversing some of the early hedges that we saw get put on in early December, does that mean uh, peril for January in your view? I don't think all those things necessarily mean somehow, uh, it, the, you know, the, the positive uh, tailwinds expire in January. There's definitely a little bit less. We've let our guard down a little bit. But I, I still think that reset was valuable. Uh, and, and you didn't have people totally bowled up heading into uh, heading into the new year so far right now. You know, one thing to keep in mind is just the attrition uh, along the way. So if you're an active manager, uh, you've definitely not, you know, they have an 85 percent chance you haven't kept pace with the S&Ps. It's hard to feel overconfident in that environment. Plus, the hottest stocks of 10 months ago were literally the worst things to buy then. Uh, so I think there's been a, a kind of a humbling experience that's uh, been underway for a while right now. And I always think that's valuable. I'd rather that than people figuring out they haven't made. But, you know, keep, also keep in mind within the Nasdaq 100 is a ton of you know, Chinese uh, Internet stocks and all these things that seem like there's been a surrender. Uh, that's different from a market that is uh, is getting overconfident, I think. Right. And, and Mike, you mentioned Tesla and NVIDIA. Tesla up 20 percent over the last week. Uh, as we think about some of these growth stocks and a lot of the other high momentum, high growth names over the last few years, Tesla just seems to be flying in the face of them. What does that tell us or not tell us about the market right now? It does. You know, it's still a fair bit off its high. So you wouldn't necessarily say that it's been, uh, you know, kind of pacing the gains recently. Uh, it's just been very difficult to handicap what's next for that company. Actually, if you looked at it from 
the moment that it entered the S&P 500, December 18th of 2020, so it's a little over a year right now, it actually was, was, was underwater from that price for a good part of this year. So again, it's been hard to say, oh, it's been an easy trade. You just had one direction, you bought and you held and you wrote it. Uh, so I think that with Tesla, it is a very good sentiment tell on, uh, on a lot of the, the kind of speculative momentum uh, types out there, which you know, have actually had their share of, uh, you know, of misses. Uh, in the last little while. So NVIDIA and Tesla also, over the last six months, they've traded almost in the same pattern as the same type of stock. So clearly, they appeal to a a similar constituency uh, in terms of secular winners. We kind of don't care that much about valuation. We just think that the incremental news flow is going to continue to be good there, and that's enough for us. Yep, that's right. Uh, Mike, thank you very much. We're going to stick with the markets now. And our next guest says that he expects tech and growth to underperform the broader marketplace in the first half of next year. Joining us, Luthold Group's chief investment strategist, Jim Paulson. Jim, good morning to you. And it's, it's great to have you. Uh, you believe that the S&P can reach 5,000 by year end. We've already had a run up of about 5% over the last week. What gets it there? I, I think the biggest thing, you know, in the new year for me, at least, is confidence. I, I really think, you know, we entered this year, the new year, with uh, by the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index is lower right now than it was at the March of 2020 after the pandemic hit. And I really think that this market's been driven more by a wall of worry and chronic worries about all the things that are uh, problematic since this crisis began looking forward than it has been by a fear of missing out. I think it's been more a fear of being in a chronic wall of worry. And I think that's going to maybe give way as we enter the new year. Our two biggest fears are COVID and inflation. And I think we're going to feel better about both of them. After Omicron runs through here, I think we're going to uh, move on to an epidemic rather than a pandemic with COVID. And I think we're going to find the supply chains are already improving and inflation moderates. And if we get those two things, I think we're going to see confident behaviors in the economy. And also that's going to run through the financial markets And the biggest thing it'll do is move investments away from the S&P 500. Hmm. Um, If you're fear-based in your investments, if if you're cautious, you're going to invest. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to the largest blue chip companies, most well-financed, and those that have their own independent growth rate outside of the economy, which you're worried about. And that's large cap growth. If if we finally get beyond that and confidence raises, I think we're going to see assets move to cyclicals and smalls and even international investments Hmm. uh, here in the coming year. Jim, you talk about this wall of worry, but we're hitting fresh record highs for the indexes. Uh, Is there more of a risk that, you know, more worries derail this rally that we're seeing? And to be clear, what does that mean for growth stocks as well? If you think that investors have been buying the mega caps, uh, what would drive them to some of the names that have been sold off? Well, I I think that... uh I, I'm not really looking for uh, mega cap tech to get trashed this year, really not. I'm just looking at underperformance. The environment here for tech stocks, when I look back historically, is is very, very good. We, and I think it, people are worried about rising yields hurting tech stocks. But I don't find that to be the relationship. If I look back to World War II, there's actually a positive correlation between uh, quarterly yield movements and, and quarterly outperformance or underperformance by tech. Um, and indeed, some of the biggest yield rises over post-war history have been met with the biggest outperformance of tech stock. 
I think it's more about the level, Deidre. Well, we're under 3% 10-year yield. We've done that about a quarter of the time since World War II. Tech stocks have, have dominated the market, not only in terms of, of significantly outperforming value, but also in terms of doing it with much, much less volatility of returns compared to value. Once you get over 3% 10 years, it, the uh, excess performance of tech goes away and its volatility goes up. So I, I don't think you want to exit large cap tech. I just think you want to have it underweighted at least <laughs> through the first half of the year. <laughs> Jim, does that mean you think a 3% a three uh, tenure is, is a possibility in the next couple of years? Absolutely, Carl. I, I don't really see it here in 2022, but I think we're going to get back above 2%. With confidence is going to, you know, is going to be with with the solid economy and with confidence is going to start to raise bond yields as well and force the Fed to act. So I think we're going to have a really volatile year overall. We, we may run above five thousand by the middle of, of next year and then have a correction and maybe come back a little bit to five thousand by the end of the year uh, overall. And I I really think terminally, we're going to maintain kind of a 3% inflation rate in the balance of this recovery. I don't think we're returning to 2% of the of the Fed's target. I think they're going to lift their target and, and be comfortable with that. But I think a 3% inflation, if that sustains over the balance of this recovery, then the terminal 10-year yield is probably closer to 4% at some point before this ends. Right. Finally, Jim, when I think about your work over the past year, it feels like you've sort of been consistently trying to talk investors off the ledge, don't worry so much about a spike in commodities or the federal deficit relative to GDP or inflation expectations. Do you think you'll be a little bit less of a, um, a pat on the back uh, in, in 22, that there will be, at least on the margin, a little more to worry about? I, I think we're going to get a correction, Carl. It could be nasty, a 10 to 15 percent, maybe sometime during the year. I, I, I'm guessing it might come from higher levels. I think when I look back at corrections, I guess the three main things I look for are, have yields been climbing for a period? That has not been the case. Have, is there great optimism, not only in the markets, but just in the economy in general? Is there an attitude of infallibility? I don't really see that yet. And then lastly, has the Fed been raising and tightening monetary policy for a period? I don't think that's in place yet. But I could see by mid-year where all three of those could come together, maybe for the first time in this recovery, and we might actually get a correction at that point. Okay, well, Jim, thanks for being with us. Good insight, Jim Paulson. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks Have so a happy much. new year. Still to come this morning, record highs for the chips, as we talked about earlier today, uh, plus a tough year for Kathy Wood. All that is still ahead. Tech checks just getting started. Gut check on Tesla this morning. Webbush goes to 1400, saying Tesla is in a strong position going into the new year. Uh, three main catalysts that could drive the stock higher. First, growth in China, uh, the linchpin to their bull thesis. Also, uh, key openings in Berlin and Austin expected to help with production bottlenecks. And then lastly, the firm predicting unit growth uh, will be front and center 
in the new year. Uh, not a busy week for research, D, but uh, we are paying attention to that call from Webbush today. Yeah, pretty big run for Tesla over the last five trading days, too. Turning to semis, Chip, some of the biggest winners in 2021. Also, the Sox just hitting an all-time high. Josh Lipton has more on what names investors continue to like. Josh? So, Deidre, let's start with the SMH. That's another ETF that tracks the chips. It's dipping right now, but obviously this one's been hitting new records and now up more than 40% this year. Under the hood of that ETF, big moves this year from some big names like NVIDIA, AMD, and OnSemi. So how long can the good times really last, though? Bernstein's Stacey Rasgon tells me he is getting a bit nervous, actually. There is growing risk, he says, that some customers have now purchased more than they actually need and won't won't order as much going forward. His checks indicate that's particularly true for autos and PCs. Piper's Harsh Kumar tells me he agrees with that view. It has been too good for too long, he says, for some of these chip names. So then, where to commit capital? Harsh says to look for sustainable, non-cyclical areas. For example, he still likes semi-companies that sell to those big cloud giants and the big carriers building out 5G networks. He's still a fan, he tells me, of On Semi, Broadcom, and Qualcomm. Carl Beck. All right, Josh, good setup for our next guest uh, this morning. Mizuho actually likes the sector in 22, uh, says they see strong demand, uh, bullish on names, including Broadcom, Qualcomm, and Micron. Joining us this morning, the analyst behind some of those calls, Mizuho's VJ Rakesh. VJ, I wonder, are you having uh, similar trouble finding bargains in this environment? Yeah, thanks for having me on, uh, Carl. I think uh, definitely 2022 should be another good year for semis. I would uh, be more selective, definitely, as you mentioned. I think the name, the spaces we like are memory, uh, like Micron and Western Digital, uh, but also the handset names. I think Qualcomm, as you mentioned, Broadcom, uh, they are both uh, should have pretty good solid years as you go into 2022 again, uh, and also Skyworks. Uh, but that said, you know, not just uh, semi names, but if you look at the EV names we cover, uh, Rivian, uh, you know, Tesla, you mentioned before in the prior segment should all have pretty strong outstanding years going into 2022 and and lastly uh, don't forget uh, the capital spending uh, beneficiaries the supply is so tight uh, you're seeing supply coming on uh, capacity being added everywhere so the capital spending beneficiaries would be applied materials uh, lamb research uh, and so so all those guys and we continue to like on semiconductor as well on semi uh, allegro micro these names are over-indexed to the EV side, electric vehicle side, and so they will be beneficiaries as you go into uh, 2022. So, Yeah, that's a lot to take in, what you just gave us. I wonder how you prioritize between the chip makers, uh, the CapEx uh, players, and the EVs. I mean, can you, can you put them on some kind of ladder? Absolutely. So I think if the way we are looking at it, uh, the memory space, uh, Micron, WD, uh, are not seeing any supply come on as you go into 2022, so they'll be beneficiaries. And the electric vehicle supply chain is benefiting because there's a massive portfolio shift globally to electric vehicles, so they will continue to benefit in 2022. Where we would be more selective are the analog automotive suppliers uh, because we think they probably over-earned in, in 2020, 2021. Uh, you saw massive growth by expansion, and we think as supply starts to come on on the analog side, some of those names, uh, you know, SPI, uh, microchip, might start to see more supply come on, more pricing pressures. Some of the some of the benefits that they have seen in the last two years start to 
uh, might be become a headwind uh, into 22. So we would definitely pivot more into areas where the structural tailwinds like electrification, uh, but also names where there's really no supply coming on, especially like the memory names. Uh, and, you know, uh, an automatic beneficiary also would be the capital spending guys. So. Talking about earlier in the show, Apple making their own chips, how that was a big theme of 2021. Uh, Google made their Tensor chip. What are you seeing in, in 2022 as the tr traditional chip makers respond to that? What do, you, what do you see as the outlook there? Yeah, I think it's fair to uh, assume that at some point uh, Apple would start to uh, pull in some of the RF component supply chain in-house. But we see that really two to three years out, which is you know much farther than investment horizon for many of the asset managers, right? So I think in the near term, the next 12 to 18 months, uh, we, we still expect to see pretty strong upside for names like Qualcomm, uh, Broadcom, uh, Skyworks, et cetera, as uh, you know, the iPhone 13 starts to, iPhone 14 starts to come on next year as well. Um, but again, uh, names like Qualcomm have really de-risked the model. They have really given out to, the, to investors an assumption that uh, their exposure to Apple will be substantially reduced. So we continue to see that supply chain benefit uh, mm -hmm. into next year, um, given some of them have been trading in a very flat uh, range this year. So. So, Vijay, where does that leave then an Intel and Pat Gelsinger's turnaround plan, as Joanna says, as more of these chip, as more of these tech giants bring chip design in-house? Does that add urgency to Pat Gelsinger's plan to push into manufacturing? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Intel definitely first needs to get its core roadmap right in terms of, um, you know, getting the PC server chip side, right? I think uh, Pat is doing one of the, uh, you know, a pretty good longer term roadmap in terms of pivoting to foundry, but that'll take time, right? I mean, trying, trying to get revenues and customers to the door on the foundry side is going to take time. So in the near term, the focus should be on the PC server side, trying to execute to the roadmaps. But uh, it's definitely a challenge as some of the hyperscale guys um, you know, Amazon, uh, Facebook, etc. Try to build their own chips, or try to you know build uh, ARM platforms, and try to uh, do some insourcing. It's definitely a headwind for Intel. But uh, I think, in as much as if they execute, if Intel executes on the core roadmap, uh, that should still get investors um, you know excited uh, and more. You know, the stock is still at a pretty good valuation, but the, I think they still need uh, they still have some big execution challenges ahead on the PC and server side, especially for Intel. So, yeah. Hey, finally, VJ, I'm thinking back to some of the research early in the year from analysts who said, look, I've covered this sector for a long time, chips, I mean, um, and when you have shortages, uh, those shortages eventually turn into gluts. It hasn't happened yet. I wonder what you think those analysts are saying right now. No, I do, uh, we do see the risk of that going into 2022 because one of the issues that we see is everybody is adding capacity, right? I think uh, you know, there's massive capacity expansion in the analog supply chain. Uh, you have Texas Instruments going from, you know, two 300-millimeter fabs to almost six 300-millimeter fabs in the next four to five years. So there's some pretty decent uh, supply expansion coming on the analog side. Uh, and so to extrapolate the demand that we saw in 2021 out uh, would be a fallacy. So we do see uh, some of the supply issues, uh, supply coming on on the analog side being a headwind um, in terms of uh, pricing, um, you know, over, uh, over capacity, et cetera, uh, on, for the analog OEMs. Not, not much for the memory names, as we mentioned. Not much on the handset side either, because the handset OEMs have also been fairly uh, conservative in terms of capacity adds on that side as well. So definitely the automotive supply chain uh, has seen more headlines, uh, has seen more focus on adding capacity. Uh, and I think that could be where the overhang, the, the next overhang will be.
Interesting. We're going to see how that how that all plays out. Uh, VJ Rakesh of Mizuho. VJ, Happy New Year. Thanks. You too. Thanks a lot. And, Carl, here's a story. Paris Hilton is launching a metaverse business. Yes, that Paris Hilton that had created Paris World on Roblox. This follows moves from major brands like Nike creating Nike Land on Roblox. Visitors can explore digital replicas of her Beverly Hills house and its infamous dog mansion. Remember that one? Can even walk a boardwalk inspired by her carnival-themed wedding and explore the island in a luxury sports car or super yacht. Sounds very on-brand. It's not just a marketing vehicle, though. Like other worlds in Roblox, Paris World collects revenue from small payments for purchasing virtual clothing or booking a ride on a jet ski this New Year's Eve if your plans have been canceled by COVID. Joanna, I'm talking to you because I know that you are well-versed in spending time in the metaverse. Paris Hilton will be DJing a set (laughs) <laughs> there, I, I don't know. Is this a sign I, of the peak? Is it a sign of this becoming mainstream? Can't decide. Well, you guys can go live in Paris Hilton's metaverse. I'm living in the Snoopverse. <laughs> I'm going to go to Snoop's metaverse, which is actually a thing. So this is a big theme Snoopy that we the have dog? happening right now. Which no, oh no, Snoop Dogg. Snoop. Oh, okay. Yeah, Snoopverse is a legit thing on the sandbox, which is, again, another sort of building of the virtual world. And this is a big trend we're seeing right now, which is the celebrities getting in, getting their fans to buy, as you mentioned, uh, apparel, land. One person bought up to, I guess, I think the number was up half a million dollars of land next to or digital land next to Snoop. So we have to decide which celebrity verse are we going to live in, and I'm probably going to live in Snoop verse. You guys, tell me where Carl, you're going to live. Carl, I'm thinking for you. you. Some, I, I, some kind I know of a couple of the people on, on on Team Snoop, and and Team Snoop has been aggressive on this whole this whole wave, uh, Joanna. Whether it's Web three, crypto, NFTs, metaverse, uh, they are definitely forward looking. <laughs> well, apparently, I know you're going to live am... in the rock verse. I saw that great interview last week, so that's where you're living. You got to pick, Deirdre. You got to pick. <laughs> well, apparently, I, I'm not even cool enough to know about Snoop first, so I got to do some some research here on which which world I'm going to pick. I'll join one of you guys or both. After the break, the future of the internet, aside from Paris World, Web two and Web three, and whether the dominant platforms like Alphabet and Facebook will stay dominant. The CEO of Automatic on overseeing the open web. That is up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, Joanna Stern, The Wall Street Journal, joining us for the hour as well. In just a bit, we're going to look at the underperformance of Kathy Wood's ARC Fund uh, to end the year, having its worst year since inception. But first, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Let's start with the markets. The S&P and Dow up for a fifth straight session as Omicron concerns continue to ease. The S&P 500 has hit a new intraday high for the second day in a row. Although stocks have given up some of their early gains. Oil prices also on the rise with West Texas Intermediate trading at its highest level in more than a month, helping to drive prices up, supply outages overseas and tighter oil inventories in the U.S. Home prices in major metropolitan areas jumping again during October. A key index showed that they rose more than 18 percent over the last year. Phoenix and Tampa showed the biggest gains with price increases averaging more than 28 percent. And weary travelers facing another round of flight disruptions today. More than 850 U.S. flights have been canceled this morning. That's in large part because of worker shortages due to COVID and winter weather conditions in parts of the country. You're now up to date. Deirdre, I'll send it back to you. 
Rahel, thank you. Looking at the future of the Internet, our next guest has spent his career exploring how to share ideas and looks at the push into the decentralized Internet, so-called Web3, as, quote, people's natural desire for freedom. He founded the company that runs WordPress.com. That's a blogging platform that powers about 43% of the websites on the Internet. Joining us now, Automatic CEO Matt Mullenweg. Matt, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, first, why don't you start by just telling us what an open Internet means to you and how that's different from the platforms that we all know and use so often? Yeah, excuse me. I believe it's a, a fundamental human right. So as more and more of our lives come to be sort of governed by technology and we rely on it more and more. I think it's so important that we can see how that technology works and modify it. And that's really, to me, what's at the core of the open internet. It's also the idea that anyone can innovate without asking permission. And that was what has made the web great and so resilient over the past 30 years. So big Twitter debate on this. Um, Earlier this month, Jack Dorsey ignited that heated discussion uh, by saying that it's not actually users at the end of the day, but the VCs that fund the new generation of Web3 companies that own it. Do you agree with that? And I wonder, in Automatic's case, you've been able to retain voting power while raising money from VCs and other investors. So does that mean, though, that the power is concentrated with you versus decentralized, what you're sort of fighting for? Yeah, I haven't spoken to Jack about that. So all I know is his tweets about it as well. If you look at seven of the top 10 top companies uh, by capitalization, they were funded by venture capitalists. So uh, we've also been funded by VCs over the years, and they've been fantastic long-term partners. Uh, In the early days, VCs had a a worse reputation, which is why I focused so much on uh, retaining voting control and things like that. But to be honest, if you're growing and the business is doing well, they typically (laughs) try to leave you alone. So I would say that any entrepreneur who's really worried about that, just focus on your business and uh, growing as much as possible. And probably your investors will will be pretty happy and as supportive as possible. But in your case, Matt, I just wonder, how do you get away from this concept of centralization? If you are fighting for a decentralized web, but you are retaining voting control, how does that sort of fulfill that ethos? Yeah, well, I run a company called Automatic, which is very centralized, as you said, like uh, I'm the CEO of that company now. Um, But we make software for decentralization. So it's kind of about user choice versus, I guess, investor and employee's choice. So if you're an investor or employee of Automatic, you're kind of signing up to be on this train uh, that we're all on together. But if you're a user of our software, you have complete freedom. You could uh, search and replace the software from WordPress to CNBC Press and sell your own version. You could modify, you could publish things that we don't like. You could do pretty much anything about it because the software has a bill of rights attached. It's the open source license, which allows anyone to use and modify the software for any purpose. Matt, I have two questions for you. First is, are you calling from your RV? This great protocol piece talked about how you have built this fancy high-tech RV, and it does not look like you're in an RV. <laughs> no, I'm not in the RV today. Uh, I'm visiting my mom, so I'm in a more more stable location. All right. And so the, 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 the second question I have, and I want to read a quote from this great protocol piece, which is, As more and more of our lives start to be run and dictated by technology use, it's a human right to be able to see how that technology works and modify it. And so many of the tech giants have said, do not do that, right? We've had issues with getting transparency into algorithms, into how the gadgets are made. How does this get forced? Is this this a legislation thing? Is this just a, a cultural thing? 
I think there's a place for legislation because many of these companies are as large or larger than most countries or governments. So we might need um, sort of, you know, the, the will of the people driving elected officials to drive some change here. I would say particularly around interoperability. Um, typically, these companies will interoperate in their early days. And then once they're successful, kind of pull up the ladder behind it. So if you think uh, the first version of iMessage and Google Talk and other messaging platforms was built on an open uh, standard called XMPP. And now, of course, they're all very proprietary and you have to use 10 different messaging apps because none of them talk to each other. Uh, on the other side, though, I think the most important thing is just user and consumer uh, will and behavior. So when people vote with their wallets and with their personal choices, uh, both in, you know, we talked earlier about who they elect, but I think even more importantly is what software they use, where they spend their dollars, what companies they support, who they work for. That's what ultimately drives the most change uh, in the world. And so that's why a big part of what I do, in addition to my day job of creating, you know, WordPress and Tumblr and Jetpack and WooCommerce, is try to evangelize for this philosophy. Because it is a, a way of understanding and looking at things, not unlike the philosophies that uh, sort of drove the Enlightenment or the creation of, you know, modern democracies. It's a way of saying, yeah, that there's a default for how the world could happen. Um, but we want something more. We're going to work a little bit harder to maintain our freedom and autonomy, both for ourselves and future generations. And which is one last question here. You mean you you talk a lot about open source, but there's been this real thought that like that just equals no revenue source. And that is clearly not the case for your company. But how do you get others to see it that way? Ah, well, and probably most relevant to viewers of this program is that so many great open source companies going public. Uh, most recently, one I used to be on the board of, GitLab. And so we're able to see open source gives people the freedom to charge for it as well. So my company and many others uh, can take open source software, release it for free to the world, and then create add-on services or hosting or plugins or other things that extend it that can cost money. Our primary goal there, though, is that for every dollar that my company automatically makes, we want at least $20 to be made by the broader ecosystem. So you can take our revenue and multiply it by 20 and see that in the broader WordPress ecosystem, there's 10 billion plus of uh, economic activity happening. It doesn't show up under one company's balance sheet. Uh, so, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a little different than some of the proprietary companies. But if you really dig into the market, that's what drives the, for example, incredible market share growth. In the past eight years, going from 14% of all websites to now over 43% of all websites powered by WordPress. Matt, I like that you bring up the idea of IPO, certainly relevant for our programming and our audience. How are you thinking about it then, especially as more of these names come to market and you seek to raise awareness about Web3? Uh, how are you thinking about your company and potentially becoming public or working with other companies? Yeah, well, we've been, I would say, incredibly lucky to have uh, to support some of the best investors of the world, whether that's Tiger or Insight or True Ventures in the early days, more recently, BlackRock, Rellington, et cetera. So we are very, very happy with our course, and we're certainly not capital constrained. My only regret there is that, you know, there is a huge WordPress community, uh, including some watchers probably right now, that aren't able to uh, own any equity in Automatic. Um, but for those who would want to buy the stock, but it's not available, um, I guess you have two options. You either have to be able to write like a $100 million check or you can come work for the company. So if you're excited <laughs> by this mission, the potential of what Automatic can create over the next decades, I encourage you to come and apply for a job. I'd love to work together and allows you to own the stock.
I like it. You touched on the talent wars there, Matt. Thank you very much. Maybe next time we'll see you from the RV, but enjoy the rest of the holidays with your family. Sounds good. We'll schedule it some in the RV next time. <laughs> Perfect. Meantime, Kathy Wood's ARC fund down more than 20% this year. We're going to break down what's driving that underperformance after this quick break. Stay with us. Kathy Wood's ARC fund having a rough year, as you probably know. Yesterday was just the latest example, down 1.5% amid a pretty good tape. Bob Pisani's got some more on what's driving that action. Hey, Bob. Hello, Carl. Uh, Kathy Wood started the year as a bona fide superstar in the rarefied world of active stock picking. She ends the year still a superstar. But the ebb and flow of her flagship fund illustrates the danger of being an aggressive active stock picker. Among her largest holdings, Block, Coinbase, Unity Software, Zoom Video, they're all down more than 10 percent just in December alone, with lesser declines for Twilio, Teladoc. Spotify, and a 3% decline for her largest holding, that of course is Tesla. Now yesterday, Wood lightened up on many positions, selling stakes in most of her major holdings. As for inflows and outflows, the inflows peaked very early this year. However, given the volatile stocks that she owns, holders of her flagship fund, the ARK Innovation Fund, they've been remarkably loyal. Since peaking in April with 201 million shares outstanding, there has been a slow but steady trickle of outflows. There's now 173 million shares outstanding. Okay, that's down 15% from the April peak, but that level has been fairly steady in the last few weeks. That's very impressive. Given the fund is down 21% this year and it's 38% off its 52-week high, it hit that high way back in February. And it hit an intraday low for the year just a few weeks ago. So a lot of people are sticking with her. The bottom line is this. There's nothing wrong with Kathy Wood's main line of reasoning. Disruptive technology companies will change the world. Well, that's true enough. But when everyone buys into the argument and prices go through the roof for companies like Teladoc or Twilio or Spotify or Unity Software that currently make little or no profit at all, or like Roku or Block or Tesla, they trade for enormous multiple to earnings, some investors are going to inevitably start questioning what the right price should be. You know, guys, it's not that Kathy Wood failed. She didn't fail. She actually succeeded. She convinced the world to go along with her. The problem was everyone bought into the story and they drove through the, the prices through the roof. And that's what we're debating now. What's the right price for these companies? Back and to you. she has... Yeah. <laughs> she has a longer time horizon, so we got to give give it a few more years. We'll yeah. see what shakes out. Bob, something that we don't tend to talk a ton about okay. is the fee structure because it's not a hedge fund with two percent. But uh, even with the poor performance of our ETFs this year, Kathy Wood laughing all the way to the bank. Seventy five basis points. So that's what we're charging. Um, you know, think about this. You can buy the S and P five hundred for. Three basis points, that's the lowest price to get into it right now. Three basis points for the S&P 500 versus 75 for Kathy Wood. Now, she does that because she does a lot of work. She's got people working for her, research. So that's, it's not that it's not justifiable. It certainly is. But you can buy the S&P 500 for three. So there, of course, is when that debate becomes very relevant. Should you just put the money into a uh, actively managed fund like Kathy Wood and pay 75 basis points, or you just put it into a fund that is essentially just tracking the S&P 500 like the Spider S&P 500 and pay three basis points. 
You decide. But a lot of people in the last few years have been putting money into, of course, those indexed funds. Hey, Bob, you know, everyone's sort of uh, watching to see if she tweaks her model or adjusts her long-term philosophy. I, I know on Squawk a few weeks ago, she did say they were starting to experiment with a long-short model in-house, uh, potentially rolling it out later on. I wonder how material you think that would be. Well, I would find that a little surprising because, remember, the whole game here is invest in disruptive technology. And she's been right. These companies have done well. The problem is she just drove the prices through the roof because everyone bought into that particular story. So you, it's hard finding these companies at their youngest point. Look at the Coinbase, the whole up and down. It's been crazy all year with Coinbase because investors pull money and pull money out because you can't figure out what the company's long-term prospects yeah. are going to be. This is what's really hard about active management. This is why people say go into index funds like the S&P 500. It's really hard. And when you're dealing with disruptive technologies, you're not buying industrials, it really gets difficult. It, it yeah. illustrates how hard it is. But I really laud her. I think she's got a terrific outlook. I hope she doesn't start start adopting long-short models, though. That would kind of be <laughs> well, and against we, the we, theme we, of what she's doing. She said she may, right? Short Shorting may be next for a fund, uh, but yeah. we have to laud her transparency as well, Bob. Um, it's yeah. certainly been something to, to cover. Thank you. As we head to break, take okay. a look at the biggest losers on the NASDAQ 100 this morning. You're going to see some Chinese names as well as some semis. There you go. Peloton as well, down nearly 3%. Been a rough few months for the company. Tech Check is back in two. Time now for a gut check on SPACs and a trio of relevant articles today. Most venture-backed companies that went public through SPACs in 2021 are trading far below their former highs, according to some analysis from Crunchbase. That list, including names we know well, BuzzFeed, WeWork, and Clover Health. BuzzFeed now down closer to $5 a share, and that is quite a collapse since going public not long ago. But just like IPOs, poor performance is not stopping the flood of money rushing into the space. SPACs looking for deals raised $12 billion in both October and November, according to the journal, double the pace of the prior three months. And of course, it's not just SPACs. We've talked about this this week. There is a massive amount of fundraising happening globally this year. We have seen companies generate a record $12.1 trillion worldwide through stock sales, loans, and debt, according to new analysis from the Financial Times. And Carl, we've been asking for some time, sort of, when does this sell-off in the growth, the tech stocks, the underperformance of tech IPOs this year hit the private markets? Of course, it is lagging, but we haven't seen any slowdown so far. Yeah, 12 trillion. Uh, it's hard to get your mind around a number uh, that large just in one year, D, as you said. Uh, meantime, a quick production note as we go to break. Uh, tomorrow night, don't miss a CNBC special, Crypto Night in America, hosted by Melissa Lee. Begins at 6 p.m. Eastern time as we watch Bitcoin back below 49K this morning. We're back after this. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment.
One more thing, Zoom announcing its latest acquisition, event production company Liminal. Liminal Software helps you create virtual events and conferences, which Zoom will integrate into its product. company says that like the future of work, it believes the future of events, everything from trade shows to office meetings, will rely on hybrid software. Of course, a lot of focus on Zoom's valuation this year. Stock was 444 back in February, now 184. Didn't say the word metaverse, uh, Joanna, and it's clearly not as aspirational as 5.9, but a lot of people wonder what Zoom 2.0 is going to look like. Yeah, I think this makes a lot of sense, given that right now when you try to put on an event using Zoom, it's basically like putting on a show in your backyard. It's just everything pieced together. I think this kind of software will help a lot of companies holding events. And yes, maybe in the metaverse, we're going to have uh, Zoom calls and this kind of thing will help us uh, put on events there as well. And it's this whole idea, guys, of Zoom and other pandemic darlings having to prove that they're more than features, they're platforms. So in this case, Zoom's still trying to prove that it's this unified communication system. Yeah. Joanna, our thanks to you for these uh, great couple days. Uh, Joanna Stern of The Wall Street Journal. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.